The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So there are, are moments as a dad where I look at my children and I'm kind of surprised by their reaction to things. And it just seems like sometimes, I have to remind myself, okay, they're, they're little, but it seems like sometimes their reaction is a little bit disproportionate. So let's say hypothetically, you know, we, we're sitting down for dinner and we're having chicken nuggets, and one of the, the children asks for some ketchup. Heaven forbid we have run out of ketchup. Because, I mean, the house might, like, burn down, okay, at that point. And the reaction to the fact that we're out of ketchup is like, what? Man, I, I'm sorry, man, we're, we're, we just, we don't have any more. Well, I, I want, but I want it. Like, I, I know you want it. It's literally an impossible, I cannot just manifest ketchup right here. We just, we do not have any ketchup. There could be, you know, crying at this point. There could be weeping. Things could get thrown maybe. Okay, I mean, sometimes I marvel at at responses from children. They seem a little disproportionate, but it's funny because I feel like God has a way of very quickly reminding me that I'm not any more mature than my children. Sometimes I have disproportionate reactions to things, okay? Have you ever had the experience where you wake up in the morning, and I like getting up early. I I love getting up early. But there are just some mornings where you wake up and it's physically painful. It's like the morning is attacking you. Have you ever had that experience before? Okay, and have you ever just in pain, okay, like you've come out of a cave from hibernation and you shuffle in to the kitchen, barely still standing on two feet, and you go to make coffee, and there isn't any. There could be crying. I might even throw things, okay? But I want some coffee, okay? It could be my reaction. Okay, there's times where I see my children and there's a toy, okay? And the two of them, there's one toy. One of them goes to reach for the toy. The other one didn't even notice the toy until the one started reaching for it. And then they get to the toy first. There's rules about that, okay? I saw it first. I, I was going to get it. And there, there could be crying, okay, at this point. And just when I'm thinking that's disproportionate, the circumstance happens where I go to the mall and I try and park in a parking space. And I have see one and I have turned my turn indicator on, okay? There are rules about this kind of thing. Okay, like, there is just the humanity of it if I have my turn indicator on, okay, and every now and then I'm waiting for the person to back out. They back out in such a way where I can't immediately shimmy my way in. And then this other guy who has no respect for my turn indicator zips in. Okay, sometimes I have disproportionate reactions to things too, okay? So I want you to think about this fact. Okay, it's important for us to acknowledge That even though we look at our children and we can say, okay, that's ridiculous. We too can have disproportionate reactions to things. Okay, we got to start on that footing before we enter into Jonah chapter 4. 
Because you're going to see Jonah, this is the final chapter of Jonah, he's going to have a little bit of a disproportionate reaction to something. And before we judge Jonah, we have to remember we do the exact same thing. I want you to open to Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to take a look at that today. And we're gonna, this is part four. We're going to finish up our series next week, but we're finishing up the story of Jonah today. And so I want you to look at this. As you're turning there, let me just get you caught up. If you're our guest today, I'm so glad that you're here. Let me just get you caught up on the story of Jonah so you know how the story is wrapping up at the end. The way Jonah plays out, Jonah is a guy that lives in Israel. God is calling him to be a prophet. He says, Jonah, I want you to go, go um, east and preach to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire that is the known powerhouse, the superpower of the day. I want you to go east to the capital city, Nineveh, probably the largest city in the, in the known world at the time. Go to Nineveh. They are the enemies of Israel. They're known for their wickedness, for their violence. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to it. Jonah says, no, thank you. And he gets up. He gets on a boat and tries to sail west. God says, I don't think so, Jonah. Sends a great storm onto the sea. It gets so bad, the sailors have no other options. They're praying for their life. They realize Jonah is the problem. They throw Jonah overboard. He lands in the water. The, the storm stops. And to save Jonah, God sends a great fish to miraculously swallow him up keep him alive for three days, vomit him back on shore. And then God says, let's try this again, Jonah. Go to Nineveh and preach to them. He says, actually, their wickedness has come before me, but go to that great city and preach to them. Jonah goes to Nineveh, goes into the, into the downtown of Nineveh, preaches walks back out of the city, and something absolutely historic and unbelievable happens. The entire city, top to bottom, repents, turns to God, and, and begins to follow God and turn from their wickedness. Unbelievable. Now, I want you to see what Jonah's reaction is. We looked, about it, looked at it a little bit last week. It's surprising. I want you to see what his reaction is. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what happens. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this why I said when I was yet in my country, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Okay, he preaches, the entire city turns around and turns to God. Is Jonah the preacher, is he happy? Humbled? Rejoicing? Awestruck? He's angry. We talked about this last week. Sometimes we think the main point of Jonah is that Jonah was fleeing God and that this book shows what happens when you flee from God. 
And that is a, a key point of Jonah. It's not the main point of the book of Jonah. The main point is to expose Jonah's heart. Because while Jonah celebrates and praises God earlier in the book for his mercy and his steadfast love, what's revealed is he can, he can love that. He can celebrate that. He can worship that. But he really has no interest in God showing that steadfast love for the nations and for the cities around the world. He really just wants it for himself. And you see, really, the whole point of this book is exposed. It's Jonah's heart. Now, God's going to address this with Jonah. And let's see what happens. This is chapter 4, verse 4. Let's keep going. Here's what it says. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Uh-oh. This is not going to go well. Jonah, you think that's a good idea, Jonah, to be angry? You think that's the right response, Jonah? Jonah, are, are you, you think that's a, that's a good, is that a good call for you to be angry? Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, simmer down a little bit, Jonah, all right? Goes out of the city, makes a little shack, sits under there. It's hot. Nineveh is in, there's actually the ancient ruins of Nineveh are still there. It's in modern-day Iraq. So you can imagine it's hot. He goes out in to see what's going to happen to Nineveh. He's in this, in this um, little shack, and God sends a great plant. He, sends, he, he does, sends this plant to grow up and cause shade. And Jonah likes it a lot. <laughs> He's exceedingly glad about the plant. He's whistling and singing and clicking his heels together. I mean, he loves this plant. It's like, man, this is a great little spot that I found. I'm going to leave this here. It's going to be my new vacation spot. I can sit under this plant. I have this view of this city. Let me see what's going to happen. He is exceedingly glad about this plant. Okay. Story's not over. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. This is a rough day for this guy, okay? And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Does that sound familiar? But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Not a good idea to talk back to God. Okay, do you see like this whole conversation, God recreated a scenario where this whole conversation happens again. Did you notice that? Okay, so Jonah sees that Nineveh 
turns to God and God has mercy on Nineveh. And he's exceedingly angry and says, God, this is too much. I would like for you to kill me now. God says, do you do well to be angry? Is that a good idea to be angry? Like, do you feel like that's the right response, Jonah? Jonah marches out of the city, creates his little shanty, and God appoints a plant. The plant grows up. Now he's exceedingly glad. He loves the plant. He's named the plant. He's oddly talking to the plant at this point, okay? He's exceedingly glad about the plant. And then God appoints a worm. The worm eats the plant. It withers. And now, once again, Jonah is exceedingly angry and asks God, this is too much for me, God. I would like to die now. And God asks him again, do you do well to be angry? Is this the right response? I want you to see that God is pairing together his feelings of anger about God sparing Nineveh and his feelings of anger that God took away his plant. A little disproportionate, Jonah, okay? He's pairing there. That's using the same language. The book of Jonah is pulling this out so we can understand there's a correlation between these two. And it wants us to see that. Okay, let's wrap this up and, and look at how the story ends, verses 10 through 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The book of Jonah is so compelling because it actually ends with a question, which is such a, a powerful way for the book to end. It ends with a question. There's only one other book in the Bible that ends with a question. And of course, as I know you know, it's the book of Nahum. I know all of you are probably doing your personal devotions in the book of Nahum. It's everyone's favorite book, okay? And actually, Nahum is an interesting book because it's also a prophet that speaks to Nineveh. But it's a hundred years later. Both end with a question because there's something that ties them together. And next week, we're going to take a look at what happens in the book of Nahum because it shows us the two sides of this story. It's fascinating. But the book of Jonah ends with this question, and it's meant for us. It's to stir us up. And one of the things about the book of Jonah that's, that is also fascinating is that the language in the book of Jonah, the words that are used, they kind of mess with us. They're kind of woven through poetically for us to see the main point. And one of the key words in the entire book of Jonah is the word great. It's also translated, it's the same word, but it's also in our English translated as exceedingly. And that word great plays itself out all through the book of Jonah. There's things like a great storm that comes on the sea. 
There's a great fish that comes up and swallows Jonah. The sailors are greatly afraid of the storm at one point, and then they have great fear for the Lord on the other side. And the word great is also interestingly applied to Jonah in various places because he's exceedingly angry. He's greatly angry when God has compassion on Nineveh. Then he's greatly glad about the plant. Then he's greatly angry again when the plant withers. And then God asks him this question when he says, were you the one that made that plant grow? The actual literal translation of that is that word great again. Were you the one that made that plant great? And what's fascinating about tracking those words great, because every time it's applied to Jonah, it's never flattering. But every single time in the book of Jonah, God talks about the city Nineveh. He always says, Nineveh, that great city. It's always God applying the word great to Nineveh. So I want to, we have to ask ourselves this question for a second. What is God's view of this city, Nineveh? Like, what do we see here in this text? What's his perspective on Nineveh? I mean, because Nineveh is the capital of the enemy Assyria. I mean, Nineveh is this, this it's a wicked city, and God's aware of that. I mean, he, says, he says, their evil has come up before me. But at the same time, we see this compulsion from God. He can't help himself but say, Nineveh, that great city. I mean, he can't help himself. He sees it as great. Why? He says so at the end. He says, look at it. It's just full of life. He says, there's 120,000 people that live in Nineveh, which in ancient standards is humongous. It's, it's a massive city. He says, it's just teeming with life, with people, with souls. People who I love, I love humans. They're made in my image. I love their souls, these eternal souls. Don't you see Nineveh just slammed with people? He says, and then he says, did you notice this, and all that cattle? Did you notice that? Is it because God loves animals? Well, of course God loves animals. He made all the animals, and when he was done making them, he said, oh, that's great. He said, that's very good. But this is actually talking more specifically because it doesn't use the word for animals. It used the words for cattle. And in their minds, that's talking about their economy. That's their herds. That's their horses. That's their oxen. That's their cows. That's, that's their, their goats. That's their sheep. He's saying, look at this city. Full of people. Full of industry. Full of innovation. Full of influence. Look at this city. He can't help himself. That's what God sees when he looks at that city. But what does Jonah see when he's looking at this city? All he sees is their sin. That's all he sees. He can't get over that. And so Jonah wants to run the opposite direction of the city when God tells him to run to it. What's God's stance in general towards cities. Jonah tells us. Like, what does God, like, feel and think when he looks at cities? He says, it, does, is he aware of the, the wickedness in the city? Of course. That's in, that's in Jonah. But his overarching feeling is, look at this great city. 
how could I not have compassion for this great city? What does God feel when he looks at our cities? Because, I mean, if if he says, look at this great city when there's 120,000, what must he feel about our cities? Our cities are more than 10 times that size. He must look and say, what must he think when he looks at, at our, our cities here in South Florida, like Miami, for example? What, what, is he, what does God feel for Miami? I mean, he sees, look at all those, life. I mean, we see, man, look at all the high rises with these tiny little condos and apartments and out here in the burbs. I mean, there's zero lot lines. I mean, there's just too many people around here. I mean, look at all the traffic. It takes me like 10 hours to get to work every day. I mean, we're just all just slammed in here. It's too crowded, too congested. You know what God sees? Look at this great city. Look at all of the people here in this city. I mean, look at all of the life. Look at all of the beings that will exist for eternity in one place or another. I mean, look at these eternal souls. He says, how could I not have compassion on this city? Look at that great city. Yeah, but I mean, look at I mean, look at our cities. I mean, I mean, I'm sure. Don't you think God sees, I mean, the vanity and the sensuality and the materialism and, and the greed and the selfishness uh, in our city? Of, well, and Jonah says, yes, look, the, the evil has come up uh, before him. Yes, he knows that. But here's the difference. That's all Jonah could see. And so Jonah wanted to run away from the city. And God was saying, yes, that's there. That's why we've got to rescue it. And he tells Jonah to run to it. God loves the city. And this section of Jonah is, I mean, it's really kind of painfully convicting. Because the word great is used towards Jonah when he's angry about the city, greatly glad about the plant, and greatly angry about the plant. And great is used to associate with Nineveh because of all its life and all the souls. And so here's what it, we, we realize with Jonah. What's great in Jonah? Is it, a, is it a compassion for the city like God has? What's great for Jonah is his concern for his own comfort. That's why God, I mean, it's absurd. Like, God, really a plant and a worm? I mean, are we really talking about this in Jonah? Like, Jonah, are you really that upset? Why? What is he exposing in Jonah? He's exposing that Jonah is more concerned with his comfort than he has compassion for the city. And God's calling Jonah to have a heart like his. Now, it seems like this book adds, ends with um, kind of a negative on Jonah. It seems like, wow, this kind of ended badly for Jonah. He's kind of a, a bad guy in this story. But you know how we know Jonah was redeemed? Because how else would we have the book of Jonah? Then if he wrote this exposing his heart so that we could learn to have a heart like God's rather than a heart like Jonah's. Here's a tough question we've got to ask ourselves, church. Like, if we are going to study this story and we're going to faithfully study this, and, and church, you know, we've got a value for, we're going to study the word, 
and what it says we're going to do it, right? And so if we're going to say we're going to be faithful to Jonah and what it says, God, we don't want to be hearers of the words. We want to be doers of the word. God, we want you to take what you're teaching us in the Bible and transform our hearts because we believe these are universal truths. So then we've got to ask ourselves a really dangerous, difficult question about our comforts and about our concern for our comforts. And honestly, I got to tell you, this is one of those kind of discussions that is really, it's so dangerous. And really, we're not going to move. Like when we walk out of here, nothing is going to change about us. On, this is one of those subjects, unless the Holy Spirit just decides to move in your heart today and in my heart. And unless we just say, okay, God, there is no way I'm going to unseat my concern for my comforts and replace it with a godly compassion for the city unless Holy Spirit you work through West Pines today unless you work in our midst and work in our hearts because here's the honest truth we've got to ask ourselves do we have a greater concern for our comfort or a greater compassion for our city church I believe he has over the last several months last several years he has begun a work in our church together where we've said I want that I want a greater compassion for the lost. I want a greater compassion for the city. I, I want to be drawn to your mission more than just my comforts, which a billion years from now, my comforts won't matter because I'll be spending eternity in heaven. So what will actually matter a billion years from now? I want that, and, and I believe he's begun a work in that. In fact, church, that's actually what we're celebrating today. Because when we launched an initiative together, we called it the Extravagant Initiative. And here's what we launched. It's a two-year initiative we launched back in February. Here's what we said. We said, we've been so extravagantly loved by Jesus that he was in the comfort and safety and riches of heaven. He looks down on planet Earth and he says, they need to be rescued. He leaves the, the glory of heaven, comes down to Earth, is rejected and tortured and killed and on the cross takes all of our sin on himself so that we can be rescued from our sin and forgiven and he rises again from the dead. And he offers that for free as a gift of salvation for us. He gives us eternity, taking all of that on himself. And we said, he so extravagantly loves us. And then he says, follow in my footsteps. So then we've got to show extravagant love to this mission field he's placed us in here in the city. And so we've said, okay, we are going to angle our church. We're going to push our church in the direction of reaching the city. And we started saying, okay, it's got, we're going to do a couple different steps. And step one, we said, is we want to reach the children and kids in this community. And so we said, we've got to remove the obstacle there. And so we, we set, said, okay, step one in this extravagant initiative is we've got to expand and double our kids' space so there's no limit to the number of kids and students we can reach. And so you know what we did as a church? He began stirring in us and unseating some of our comforts because we together, church, it's not just something that one group of leaders did. We did this together. There are many of you that gave your time and gave your expertise and many of us together from our families, we invested our resources in this and every time you invest, whether it's your time, your expertise, whether you invest financially, every time you invest in something, you're saying no to something else, aren't you? 
And so we said, we're going to take a step, and God, we want you to do more in us to, to reach into the city, to reach in and minister to these that are broken and lost, that you have such a heart for. We're going to do, we're going to, we want to stretch ourselves more than we ever have. And church, eight months later, step one, done. Eight months later, we come and we sit here together and we're opening up our kids' space. There are children over there right now as we speak that are hearing about the gospel. There are children over there right now that a foundation is being laid in their lives, seeds planted that are going to take root in their lives, protecting them from the world and that wants to pull them in another direction so that they are learning that Jesus saved them, they're accepted by God, and that he has a mission for them to be on. And so, so I think the Lord has done a work here in our midst and wants to continue that work, drawing us in to saying, you know what, I actually have a greater compassion. What's great when you think about West Pines is it our great concern for our comforts or is it a great compassion for our city? And I think today we're celebrating that he's moving us into that place where he's saying, no, I'm, I'm growing that compassion and that love that you would see the cities of South Florida God says, like I see them. But there's another thing that that's going to mean, church. Because as the Lord continues to work through West Pines and we continue to grow and we set our sights on what is the next step in our extravagant initiative, next step is we want to see another, we're going to move towards the city and see another campus of our church open up somewhere as we're moving back towards the cities. And so here's what this means. We not only have to look at our personal comforts, church, we've got to be ready to hold out our church comforts before the Lord. Because every time there's growth, that means there's change, good change, but uncomfortable change. I want to remind you of this on a day like today when there's no big announcement. I want to faithfully be one of your pastors in your life and there's no like, I'm pulling the curtain off of anything and saying, ta-da, there's nothing like that today. So I want to be faithful to remind you of this today. Because that's always how it happens. I remember the time when we were meeting in a cafeteria and we moved into this space and we never again had to pull things out of a box truck and set it up and tear it down every single week. We no longer had to spray um, Fabuloso everywhere so it didn't smell like bologna, okay? And I remember that day and I remember there were chairs. We had them set about halfway back in this room because uh, that's about all that we would need to seat. And I remember we were so excited to move from that uh, cafeteria into the space, and it was, but it was change. And I remember there were people that said, oh, you know, I'm happy about it, but that's ah, a little farther for me to drive. And it was just something sweet about we were in the cafeteria. And there were people that said, you know what, I, I think I'm going to find another church at that point. I remember when we were that first Sunday, I mean, it was so open in the back there. We just thought, well, maybe people will kind of see it as like a second lobby, okay, because there weren't chairs that went all the way back. And we couldn't imagine what would it be like if there were chairs all the way back and, and people filling um, a, a service. Like, what will that be like? And one day, we, one day, as the Lord continued to grow, the whole room was filled all the way to the back, and we announced that, hey, we're going to go to a second service, and we were all excited, and that helped so many people because now they could serve at one service and attend at a service, and it didn't mean they were serving, and they had to miss out on the service all at the same time. And, and yet there were some people that said, I hear you, but 
it's just, it's different because it was nice when we were all in one service. I mean, there's people I don't see anymore because we go to different services. It was growth. It was change. It was good change. But we kind of had to surrender our church comforts. Then when we came to, to three services, and now um, over the years we've, we've challenged you to say, hey, um, we need you to go to the, the, the 10, uh, 30 service is going to be our biggest, so we need you to go to the 9 o'clock or the 12, and, and some of you found ways to rework your family schedule, and so it was uncomfortable. We had to rework things, but you did that because so we could accommodate growth. And so here's the thing. Be ready. If we, God, if God, we want God to use us to reach the city, we're going to have to hold our comforts and say, got it. I care more about the city than my comforts. Because here's what's going to happen in not too long, now that we're setting our sights on the next step. There's going to come a day where there is a big announcement. And one day soon, we don't know when and we don't know where this next campus is going to be, but one day soon we're going to stand up and we're going to say, hey, we need 50 families to commit for one year to go to that location and attend and to serve. And those families are going to show up at that location and it's going to be their home church with their vision and their DNA and it's going to be this, the same heart and the same methods but it's going to smell different and look different and feel different and they're going to serve a little bit different and it's going to be change, it's going to be growth, it's going to be change, it's going to be good change but it's going to be uncomfortable. And so I want to start as a church saying, God, we surrender our personal comforts. We also surrender our church comforts. And, and I want to commission some of you today as we're, starting, as we're celebrating step one of the extravagant initiative done, that even before we know where that next location is and, and when, that you start now, some of you, praying. And maybe all of us should pray this. Lord, should I be one of those 50 families that are going to go and give myself for a year to get that place up and running? What if we started praying that? What if... When God looked down at West Pines, he found a church so nimble, so ready to be used, so readily surrendering, surrendering our comforts, personally and our church comforts, that he could say, all right, now I can really start accelerating reaching the city through them. Because you know what I want to see? I just want to be a part of. I just want to witness. What if what happened in Nineveh could happen in Miami. Could you imagine that? What if what swept through the capital of one of the wickedest empires in history swept through South Florida? Well, the cities are a lot bigger than they were back in the, in the Old Testament. Oh, so, so the gospel's now met its match. Is, is that what it is? So it must be that, that the power of God's like, man, I, I don't know about these cities today. I'm going to need some help. Well, ask the people of Jericho about that. Ask the, the Pharaoh of Moses' day about that when he brought the greatest empire of the historical world to its knees. Ask, ask them if, if there is any match for the power of God 
Because church, what could happen if from the greatest to the least in, here in our cities, what could happen if God's like, I want to reach these cities, I love these cities, I'm intending to reach these cities, and so the time is now, so I'm stirring up churches here in this region that are saying, here we are, send, send me. Because what Jesus said is he said, the fields are white with harvest. He said, so pray for laborers. Do you realize it's not a gospel receptivity issue according to Jesus? It's not, well, is harvest really possible? He says, it's ready for the picking. We just need laborers. And so what if we're one of those churches that say, God, use us. We'll run to the city. We'll run back in. We'll run into those dark places. We want to see such a work of God that when we look back, it's not by might or by power, but it has to be by the Spirit. What if God looked at West Pines and said, man, there is such a density of surrender in that church. I can't help but use it to reach this great city. So can we stir ourselves up? To say, really, my, my, really, are my comforts that big of a deal? I, am I crying over a plant? That's pretty ridiculous when a city's at stake. There was a um, World War II paratrooper by the name of Murdo McDonald. And he paratroop, he, he dropped in. He got captured and taken to a concentration camp. And he, they, they had a wall down the middle of this concentration camp. There was one barracks over here and one barracks over there. And this paratrooper, uh, McDonald, he was also he was a pastor before he um, fought in the war. And so he became the chaplain of this barracks. And then there was a chaplain of this barracks. And the, the wall that separated them, well, over in McDonald's barracks, they had fashioned together secretly a little radio. And the Germans, the guards, didn't know about it. And so they listened to the radio, and they would be hearing these headlines. And so McDonald would hear the headline, and he'd calmly walk over to the wall, and um, their chaplain would walk over the wall, and he'd whisper through the wall the headline, and they would do it in English. But the Germans caught him because they could speak English. So the next day, um, they, he, he got the headlines. They, the Germans never learned of this radio. He, he got the headline, and this time he goes to the wall, and he, he speaks through the the fence in French, the headline. But the Germans knew the French. So he goes back and he hears the headline and this time he's like, Gaelic. I know that other chaplain knows Gaelic. We'll try that. Walks over, gives them the headline in Gaelic. The Germans did not know, the German guards did not know Gaelic. And so they began passing every day the headlines over to the other barracks that way because of this, this radio that they had fashioned. So one day... He gets this piece of news, and he walks over to the wall, and he calmly whispers in Gaelic the headline, and he waits this time at the wall to hear what would happen. And this other chaplain walks into the barracks, and he waits, and all of a sudden, cheering and shouting break out in the other barracks. Because because they had a radio, they knew something the German guards didn't know. Germany had surrendered. So for the next three days, the prisoners, it's solid celebration, and the Germans didn't know why. 
They're shouting and high-fiving and hugging and jumping and singing and petting the dog, the German dogs, and waving at the German guards, and the, and the guards have no idea what's going on, and they're celebrating the victory that they know they already have, even though it hasn't yet arrived at their concentration camp. And they wake up on the day of the fourth day, and all of the German guards had fled in the night and left the gates unlocked. They were set free. But can I remind you of something, church? When we look at our city, we say, man, is there really victory for the gospel here? But do you know that we're following the victorious one? Does anyone in here believe that he's already won? Do you realize the the battle is already won? The darkest hour when he was hanging on the cross, Jesus Christ, he goes into the grave and he raises back to life. Church, we've already won. The enemy cannot win. What if we started acting and celebrating today like our cities are marked cities? There's something that's already coming for these cities. And what if we started celebrating and cheering today as we see, hey, we've just taken one step towards these cities. They don't know what is coming for them, but we are going to celebrate and party today because these cities are marked for the gospel flag to be planted in the center. We are not going to sit by and watch the enemy control cities that God has put in his sights. We are going to not stop until we see these cities transformed by the gospel in our generation. Does anyone believe that can actually happen today? So here's what we're going to do today. We have to say we can clap, we can cheer, we can believe. But West Pines, we as a church are going to walk out of here and we're going to do serious business saying, God, get us ready. We surrender our comforts. Build a compassion for the city. We want to follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Let's do that work before the Lord today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want you to take a quiet moment before God today. Christian, right there in your seat, get into a posture of surrender before Jesus. This is your moment. I don't want us to leave here without each one of us individually surrendering so when you sit there, can you, can you pray something dangerous today? Each of you, can you just take this moment where you just say, God, Holy Spirit, do a work in my heart. Ask him for that work in your heart. Say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me this week, what are the comforts that I'm putting over my, my compassion? Can you ask him to reveal that to you? Can you ask him now as he's revealing some of these comforts, Christian, can you ask him to give you the strength to surrender whatever the comforts are? Can you ask him to give you that passion to take up your cross and follow him? Ask him to stir up your heart this week and to begin a deeper process of surrender and sacrifice for the sake of this great city. Maybe some of you in a quiet moment need to, need to 
confess that you've looked at our cities like more like Jonah than you've looked at them like God. And would you ask him to give you a drive to run to the city like he does and not away from it like Jonah? There are some of you that are here today and here's what you're saying and maybe what God, what the Holy Spirit's stirring up in your heart is you're realizing there are comforts that are keeping me just from following Jesus. Really what it is, I know about Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I I, I believe the thing about him dying on the cross and I, I think I believe he rose from the dead but I've not surrendered to him. I've not made him the Lord, the boss of my life. I haven't just said, okay, I'm in, you're my boss, you're my king, you're my God, I follow you. And so maybe what you're realizing is your comforts are keeping you from receiving salvation forgiveness and making Jesus your Lord and it's just comforts it's a it's a plant today can you put aside those comforts and say Jesus I want you more put your faith in Jesus today and if that's where you're at you want to take that first step I want to lead you in this quiet prayer just right there in the silence of this intimate moment with you and God make these your words say Jesus Thank you for running to me. Save me. I don't deserve it because I'm a sinner, but you took all my sin away. Paid for it on the cross. And rose again from the dead. I want to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.